Good morning, church. It is very good to see you. Thank you for your many prayers and notes and words of encouragement and sympathy, celebration for my dad. And it is a privilege to return to this pulpit where he derived so much blessing through, uh, from which he derived so much blessing in his life that has overflowed to ours as well. It's a privilege to bring you God's word. And I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Zephaniah. Don't be afraid to look at the table of contents or turn to the page marked for you in the bulletin 789. Zephaniah, and uh, we are in the second chapter. We'll may have a couple of more messages in this little book. But Zephaniah, to remind you, was writing about 600 years before Christ is born. Uh, the northern uh, tribes, the northern nation of Israel, ten tribes, has already fallen as God promised they would because they refused to repent and turn from their first loves other than God. And now Zephaniah sent to the southern kingdom of Judah from which the Lord Jesus would come from that one tribe of Judah, uh, Zephaniah is sent to beg them, to warn them, to exhort them to turn away from their selfishness back to the Lord. Zephaniah in chapter 1 warns them the day of the Lord is near. In the Bible we have little d days, that is, smaller expressions of the coming great judgment, which Israel had already experienced and Judah would experience in another 150 years or so. And all of them warning of that great day, the final day of judgment that is coming. And we saw in chapter one, as we've seen in all of these minor prophets, that God doesn't enjoy being wrathful. He doesn't enjoy warning about judgment. He does so because of the passion of his love. He passionately desires that we turn away from our sin and selfishness and live in the fullness of life that he promises to those who live in submission to him. Now in chapter 2, he turns, Zephaniah does, as other prophets have done, especially we saw it in Amos, He turns to the other nations and he says, now, wait a minute. I don't want you to look down on Israel or Judah thinking that they're going to get their judgment from their God and uh, be glum about it to celebrate it. I'm warning you, I am the king of all the earth. I'm the king of all the nations. Everyone must bow and submit to me. And if they do, there is life and life everlasting promised. That's what we find in chapter 2. God's word to us and to the entire world, submit to me and you real life. Let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 4. Gaza, this is the capital of Philistia, for Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. 
Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and foals for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them, and he will restore their fortunes. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in their midst, all kinds of beasts, Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. I want you to turn to one other passage, chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Would you open our eyes, O Lord, however frightened they may be, however uh, tear-soaked they may be, blinded by unbelief, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears that we may see and hear the good news for all of those who are sheltered in Jesus Christ. And for those who are unsheltered, who are like these nations saying, I am and I shall take care of myself. Would this be the day of their salvation, their repentance, their truly coming alive? We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. God's people said together, amen. In the late 1970s, a young teenager was brought to a court, juvenile court in California. 
after he'd finally been caught for a rash of auto thefts, stolen one car after another. He got a great thrill out of it, a great adrenaline rush. His buddies admired him. It was profitable. But he'd finally been caught. He's taken before a judge. And the juvenile court, court judge gave him a unique sentence. He sentenced him to go to a ski school high up in the mountains. And he said, don't come back until you have mastered downhill skiing. Well, young Bill did not appreciate that. I don't know that he liked skiing very much, but it didn't matter. That was his only hope. If he was ever going to get out of this sentence, he was going to have to master downhill skiing. To submit to that judge was aggravating to him. It was restricting. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to lose his freedom. But in 1984, when Bill Johnson was receiving the gold medal for downhill skiing, he thanked the judge for his sentence. Submission to the Lord is not always pleasant. Seldom it is. When we have one way we want to go, one thing we want to do. And it's not pleasant. It's not even rational to nations. But it is always the best. It is the secret to flourishing. It is the secret to real life. It is the secret to living truly in a fulfilled way, as Peggy was saying in her uh, address today. To, to, To live with our hands yielded to the Lord is to be in the position of strength, however counterintuitive it may be. And so Zephaniah announces not just to a few Israelites, but to all of Israel, and not just to Israel, but to the entire world and to all history, that the only way to life, the only way to live, really live, is to submit to the gracious, sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of this word that we have received and is the mediator of all of history and every human affair, as John says in chapter 1, verse 1. Why should we submit to him? Yes, it brings life and flourishing, but what does that mean? It means, for one, that he protects his people. He protects his people. God turns through to Zephaniah to the nations around Israel. Just as Israel is getting her rebuke and her warning, God is also saying to those nations that surround her, and she may be thinking, oh, now we're very vulnerable. What is God going to do? Is he ever going to fulfill his promise to bring a Messiah through us? Can he do that? He turns around to all of Israel's enemies and says, you must submit too, or I will bring you down. And so he turns first to the southwest of Judah, to Gaza, the capital of Philistia. You don't have to know much about Philistia to remember one infamous Philistine. 
Goliath. And uh, Goliath had waged war against uh, Israel. He was, they were terrified of him. And how did God bring him down? Not with mighty weapons of strength, but by a little boy with a slingshot and using the, the giant's own sword decapitated him. Even that defeat didn't stop the Philistines from, from tormenting Israel for the rest of her days. Philistia regularly appears in Scripture as that nagging, evil enemy of God's people. They were a particularly repulsive people because their main economic engine was human trafficking. They were man-stealers. They stole men and women and children and uh, sold them all around the settled area. And God says to these, unless you repent, you will be decimated. Why do we need to know that God protects his people? Because you need protection. You and I need protection. This is a dangerous world. Our news outlets traffic in terrifying us with what other nations, hostile nations, are planning against us. Social media and news outlets terrify us with all of the, the insights into how much data and information the government gathers on us in order to, quote-unquote, help us. Neil deGrasse Tyson, a famous uh, scientist who is also an outspoken agnostic, says he cannot believe in a benevolent God because after studying the universe for as many years as he has, everywhere he turns, he sees a universe that is trying to kill us. This is a dangerous world internationally. It's a dangerous world uh, with physical, with uh, natural phenomena. It's a dangerous world of disease. It's a dangerous world of crime and violence. Everywhere we are surrounded by danger, we need his protection. God has promised that he would protect his people in order to accomplish his work of the kingdom. He has promised that he would protect Judah, even though he would have to take her into exile so that he could bring through her the agent of our redemption, namely Jesus. But knowing that you need protection is not enough. The implication here to Israel and to the Philistines is that one reason that they are being threatened with judgment is that they are all wanting protection, but they see no need to extend it to others, especially the vulnerable. God says regularly in these minor prophets, the reason, the mo- the reason I am disappointed, the reason I am angry, one of the reasons I'm bringing judgment against you is not just because you're bowing down to idols. It's because you're becoming like those idols, selfish, uh, selfishly absorbed and not extending service to those around you, especially those who are vulnerable. To know that Jesus Christ is your protection must drive you, drive me to stand up 
against bullies, to stand up against for alter, uh, alternatives to abortion, to stand up for foster care and for adoption, to oppose human trafficking, to honor the elderly, to stand up for those with special needs, to advocate for the best health care for those who are needy in our city and to protect children who are being used and abused and neglected. This is what every Christian is called to do when we, when the Bible says, pray for the peace, for the shalom of your city. He was addressing people in Jeremiah. He was addressing these same, maybe descendants of these to whom Zephaniah was preaching. These descendants who are now in exile in Babylon in a hostile nation, in a very dangerous place. He was saying, pray for the peace of this place. Put your roots down in this place. Plant gardens in this place. Have marriages, have parties, have celebrations. Live in this place where I have put you for the sake of shalom. Let's have just a bit of a family talk for a moment. As many are tempted to run from this city. If you've been traumatized and violated, that's understandable. If God, if God is calling you somewhere else, then you must go. But God never calls you away from something. He only calls his people to something. Now, you have to answer before God. You have to make your call. You have to make your decision of where you go and where you come before God directly. But you must ask this question first. What does it mean when he says to you, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness? Seek first my kingdom. He never says, seek first your personal peace and safety and prosperity. He says, seek first my kingdom. The kingdom of God would never have advanced in history if God's people, generation after generation, said, well, I'm not sure I can stay there because there's the potential that I might lose something. I might get hurt. I might even die. Kingdoms, the kingdom of God has advanced in history by God's people, not just missionaries and not just preachers, but God's people in every ordinary vocation saying, this is where God has put me by providence. I'm going to seek his kingdom here and I'm going to pursue the peace of this place if it costs me my life. The promise of protection is a promise of eternal protection. It is not a promise of temporal protection. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he may as well have said, take up your coffin, strap it on your back like a backpack and carry it with you so that you might be ready to fall into it at any moment I should call you. But in the meantime, you pursue my kingdom. 
You say, you know, Jackie and Paul just took their vows before the EPC General Assembly along with with, uh, Dan and Catherine and other missionaries to go to the mission field. And they have to vow to be willing to lose their lives for the gospel's sake. We should add that vow to our membership vows. It's not something just for missionaries and for preachers. Our first calling is to pursue Christ no matter what in the place where we are until he calls us elsewhere. And he promises eternal protection and eternal celebration. Dear friends, may I dare say it? Liza died as a martyr, not as a victim. It's because she loved Jesus, she ran. It's because she loved Jesus, she stayed. She had the means to leave. And when she was welcomed by Jesus, I'm convinced he gave her a white robe. And the kingdom has been advanced. I'm not happy that she died. We shouldn't be. But the kingdom hasn't been hindered. It's been advanced. Just as it has throughout all of history. As the blood of martyrs has become the seed of the church. The message of these minor prophets is not something we just take in intellectually and say, isn't that interesting? Now I know something about Zephaniah for the next trivial pursuit game. But Zephaniah speaks to us this day and says, your God has promised you eternal peace, eternal protection, even if you lose your life in this city while seeking its shalom. One more word to help you feel ennobled, not shamed. I'm not trying to shame, but to ennoble you that as you stay, as you suffer persecution, as you suffer fear here, you're doing so in the name of Christ. If Christ is your first, your first, uh, your first focus, Think about this. Go visit Martyrs Park on the river. Martyrs Park, the monument is built to those who stayed here in the yellow fever epidemic and cared for those who were sick and dying. As far as I can remember, there is no such monument at Forest Park in St. Louis where so many with the means fled and started their lives over. Don't we want to be those who not only hear well done, good and faithful servant, but are with those other white robed martyrs who say, how long, O Lord, until you bring vengeance on our enemies and cause 
your kingdom and your righteous to be the obvious rule now and forever. We want to be on that triumphant side. Jesus protects his people even if they lose their life in this life. Now the other two points will come more quickly. They have to. Second one is Jesus punishes pride. King Jesus punishes pride. He turns from those in the southwest in Philistia to the east side. <clears throat> you see if I get this right. Yeah, east side of Jordan to Moab and Ammon. Moab and Ammon were those incestuous sons of Lot. Lot came out of the spared Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, his daughters had sons by him, Moab and Ammon. They were cousins of Israel. And yet, despite their, their coming into the world in this, this less than ideal way, they mocked and taunted and ignored their cousins, the Israelites, when they were in great need. We saw it in the prophecy of Obadiah. You can review that there. But God warns that that kind of pride that we can experience from those around us who are mocking us for our faith and in their pride, and they seem to be getting along better than we do at the time, it is short-sighted. One commentator said, there is a principle in the very heart of God and it is that the Lord's people cannot be treated with impunity. But every earthly hurt is registered in heaven for whoever touches his people touches the apple of his eye. You may be seen, you may seem to feel defeated now at your school, the only one standing up for his or her faith or in your workplace or in your neighborhood or at large in this country by what you are facing here in this city. But remember, God has you as the apple, the pupil of his eye. You are treasured to him. He stores up all of your tears in his bottle. And he makes, takes record of every hurt that is given to you for Christ's sake. And he promises militant vengeance against it. You see these words like, as I live, I will do this. I will be awesome against them. Verse 11 Similar promises are made in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to Christians who suffer in the name of Christ. Final point is that we submit to this great king because he is with hope and with celebration and with victorious perspective because he is the one who produces praise. Here is the secret to God's final victory. Here is his ultimate weapon. It's in verse 11. It's tucked in there. Verse 11, the Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. And then this, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You know, not everyone who writes 
commentary on Scripture believes that Scripture is God's Word. And I read one commentator once who looked at this verse and said, well, this is obviously a fragment that is misplaced from some other place because this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't follow with what God is saying. He's been pronouncing judgment. And now all of a sudden he says that these are going to bow down and that he is going to be the ruler of all these nations. Well, we know that's not a misplaced fragment. We know that that is God's word. It is God's promise of hope to his people. That I am going to triumph by means of the gospel over every nation that uh, holds its fists against me. And I will have representatives from every tribe and tongue and people and nation before me, in my, before my throne at the great day. So many that no one can count. I promise that these nations opposed to me and my purposes now. I will have citizens from everyone in my army. I will undermine nations. He'll undermine them uh, in real time. Zephaniah, when he says that Egypt, in verse 12, is going to fall, it's already on the decline. The most powerful nation on the face of the earth that kept God's people in bondage, it is in serious decline. Nineveh, lying as it did along the Tigris River, a rich uh, natural resource that should have allowed it to live forever. Nineveh is crumbling Assyria would be destroyed by Babylon. Edom will be brought down from its strong places. Yes, that'll happen. It has happened in history. But God means more than that. He means I'm going to save people from each of those warring nations. I'm going to make them my servants. I'm going to make them missionaries. Remember Psalm 87? He will say of Philistia, this one was born in Zion. You remember the promise in Jeremiah 48? I will restore the fortunes of Moab. Do you remember Rahab the harlot? who helped those spies coming into the promised land, helped them get down out of the window. Rahab had a son named Boaz. Boaz had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David. Rahab the Moabitess became the great-great-grandmother of David. The gospel spread from the Middle East and East, South to Ethiopia, North Africa, and East. And it never stopped until in AD 700, it made it to China. It's predicted by 2050, 20% of Chinese, the Chinese population will be Christians. That's more powerful than any other geopolitical strategy. And then the gospel spread from the, from the Middle East west to Western Europe and then to the Americas, America, and then South America and to Africa and to Northern Europe. The gospel has spread everywhere. 
Despite nations saying it, will, it must stop here. It will not go any farther. We'll kill you if you remain a Christian. It's never stopped the forward advance of the gospel. A few years ago, I was reading the history of the church of Uganda. Uganda is now one of the most Christianized nations in the world. There are 8 million members of the Anglican church alone, not to mention many, many thousands of members of other churches too. One in nine persons in Uganda is an Anglican. That uh, revival did not occur without the shedding of blood. The first Ugandan convert was Hamu Mukasa in the 1950s. Because missionaries taught him how to read and write, he converted to Christ. The king wanted to put him and other early converts to death. But uh, eventually they saw the king Mutesa, uh, saw the saw the benefit of having Christians around, but his son, Moanga, did not. And so his son, Moanga, sat on a program of, of killing Christians. Oddly, he, he called Mukasa back. Mukasa had fled because he was, they were trying to kill him. He called him back and he said, unless you return, the king said to Mukasa, the first convert, unless you return, I'm going to kill your father. He returned to save his father's life. He was convinced he would die himself. But then oddly and inexplicably, instead of killing him, the king made him put him into a very important post in the government. And Mikasa used that important post in the government, leveraged it to save the lives of many Christians and to help advance the gospel of Christ. But then Idi Amin came along, 1971 to 78. He was going to exterminate Christianity. He wanted Islam to be the uncontested religion of the whole nation. He was determined to kill all the Anglican bishops. Instead, he just killed the archbishop thinking that the rest would cave, but they did not. They continued to evangelize. Finally, he gathered a group of young converts thinking that he could get them to turn. These were brand new converts. He brought them into a stadium of 3,000 people shackled. He was lining them up, preparing them to be blindfolded and killed. And instead, the archbishop showed up in the crowd. The young converts recognized him. They raised their shackles to him and said, we have given our lives to Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins and it is our privilege to die for the name of Jesus. Pow! They were all shot immediately. And I mean thought, surely this will put an end to Christianity. Just the opposite. The floodgates came off. And revival swept through Uganda that continues to this day, producing not just Christians who live their lives in that country for Christ, but Christians who through the last several decades have stood up against those in America who have compromised on Scripture and compromised on the gospel. 
and said, we want no fellowship with you until you repent. Would we be any less courageous to say, Jesus has forgiven our sins. We've been promised eternal life. We want to be a part of that forward movement of the kingdom of God. By taking the battle, the fight to the devil, not allowing him to intimidate us in any way. Seeking the shalom of our city and the expansion of the kingdom of God because to submit to Christ is to live and to live eternally. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, I thank you for my church, for my family here at Second Presbyterian. I thank you, Lord, for the heritage that this church has been to my family. My family for several generations in Memphis. And now to my immediate family. The heritage that this church has been to this city for centuries or over a century. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we have inherited this great gospel and the courage of our forefathers, that you would use us to stand and to stand up against all intimidation of the evil one. Push back the night, push forward the kingdom, and to be a light to the whole rest of the world. Bring us to your knee to refresh us, to subdue us, and to fulfill us. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.